You can forget a lot of things, Foster Care Nation, but never forget this. You're listening to Unparalleled Studios. Foster Care Nation, listen up. This is Foster Care and Unparalleled Journey. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Hello and welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey with Jason and Amanda. Today we have Scott Mason with us. I met Scott through our friend Oleg. If you remember the interview with Oleg Lowheed a while back after we got off the, the call, he said, I want to introduce you to a friend of mine. I think he is exactly who you need to talk to. So today we're going to talk to Scott. How are you doing today, Scott? I'm fantastic. It's good to be here. Hey, it's great to have you here. So Oleg didn't tell me your story, but he told me that you're an awesome dude and we need to talk to you. So tell me why you're an awesome dude who knows a lot about foster care and adoption and all the things that we talk about, man. Well, I won't tell you exactly why I'm awesome. Y'all are just going to have to figure that out for yourselves. (laughs) And if your audience has any idea, please make sure that they email you and let you know and then pass it on to me because, of course, I'll be curious about hearing it. Great, great. In terms of adoption, lived experience is something that speaks to me. Like I'm sure many of your guests, I am adopted. I have some unusual circumstances surrounding my adoption and my history. They have transformed how I view the world. They have brought hardship into my life, but they've also given me strength, resilience, openness, and been secretly gifts that I could not imagine living my life without. That sounds like a good thing. It sounds pretty awesome. (laughs) (laughs) We might as well do whatever we can to make um, soap purses out of sow's ears, right? (laughs) You do what you can do. Exactly. Just don't start making shoes, too, because she's going to take all the purchase and shoes you can give her. (laughs) Shoes. But so tell us, how does your journey begin? Once upon a time, there was a British woman. She went to graduate school for languages in London. She met while she was there, a man who had come from Trinidad to study law. And I don't know if they fell in love or like, whatever, but something happened because nine months later, my head, my head appeared in this world. And as you can imagine in the, now, even though I'm only 25, I was born in 1967, and in that era, even in England, being in graduate school, having a kid, unmarried, mixed race, mixed race, it was not a recipe for social acceptance in the least. And so I was put up for adoption. Interestingly enough, I was given a name, though, before she put me up for adoption. I'm very grateful that my adoptive parents changed it because it was Calvin Franz and I would have been fodder for bullying and getting beat up all the time with that sort of name. I grew up in the Midwest. (laughs) So my parents, my last name is Mason. My parents were going to name me Jason until they figured out at the very last minute, uh, maybe something else would be a better name. (laughs) 
because I didn't want to be Jason Mason. And so um, I ended up being Scott Mason. I was adopted by two African-Americans who were in the service in England. They um, raised me mostly in the outskirts of the capital city of Kansas, Topeka. It was largely a rural environment when I was growing up, although eventually it became suburban. And it was a fascinating milieu to grow up in. Those who may be listening to the podcast but cannot see me will probably not fully appreciate that when people would actually look at me, they would question how on earth this particular child emerged from the parenthood of of two African-Americans. And I have an adoptive sister who's also biracial, who was adopted here in the United States where no relation whatsoever. She actually looks biracial. I look more ethnically ambiguous, could be anything or nothing at all, unlike some people I know. And, and so that created a whole host of tensions, both in the environment that I grew up in, in my immediate family and in my and my extended family, and formed and helped shape everything that I am today. Yeah, that's one of those things that, you know, I, I speak to a lot is the, the idea that people look at look at you and make a lot of assumptions, because uh, God knows I've experienced that. Yeah. And nobody seems to know I, I am what you assume I am. Yeah. And, and I, I can actually learn to use that to my own benefit. Because I work in a lot of a lot of areas in St. Louis that sometimes are kind of sketchy, um, and sometimes, you know, I, I find that different different assumptions that people make can be helpful. Sometimes they're not at all helpful. Yeah. You know, so like like you know, we mentioned before we started recording. You know, oftentimes, you know, I've been told to go back to my own country. And I I usually just want to ask which one that is, but that racially ambiguous thing, you know? So what I always tell people I when, on the paperwork, when I want to write down, when it asks for your, for your, um, your race, I just want to write ambiguously Brown. <laughs> Nobody knows what it is. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but people, it, it causes problems in, in communities. It really does. We have such a tendency as a species to box people into who we are or others. And I understand there are evolutionary reasons for that. Uh, However, those evolutionary reasons ideally are mitigated by and able to be overridden by our intellect. That being said, I've been in that exact situation. People have said some very shocking things about African-Americans, for instance, in particular, uh, thinking that I had assuming I assumed that I was white or had no particular ties to that community. And it's, it's mind blowing. And so, and, and, you know, I think that it's the stories I could tell about that are, are, are amazing, but I, it's also more deeply than that. It gives, I believe the ability to view race relations, to view the categorizations that we place upon ourselves and on others in a light that is perhaps a little bit more objective or at least neutral. I see the artificiality of a lot of these designations because I'm living it, as I'm sure you do too. I'm seeing how, like you just said, to the extent that people identify you with something or another, 
they place a whole basket full of expectations, assumptions, characteristics on you that are really reflections of who and what they are inside rather than you, who and what you are. That can be powerful uh, outside of giving one a broader perspective on our role within society. It also gives the freedom to play around with things because I don't carry a lot of those social expectations or limitations within myself. So you said you grew up in Kansas. I did. What part of Kansas? Outside of the capital city, Topeka. Okay. Yeah. I've, I don't, I don't have a whole lot of experience with Topeka, but we're, we're here in uh, we're about an hour West of St. Louis. So yep. we're, we've been through Kansas a couple times. And so I'm certain we saw you if we hit the state of Kansas, because I mean, you can see all of Kansas. <laughs> From either edge, right? <laughs> and I might have seen you, by the way, because when I was growing up, the big exciting thing that we would do was go to St. Louis for the Six Flags there. That was the real amusement park. And so we would travel there maybe once every five years. It was special. You guys have worlds of fun, though, don't you? Yeah, but worlds of fun. I liked it, but it wasn't quite the same. Let's be real. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> It's been 20, no, more than 20 years since I was at Worlds of Fun and almost that many since I was at Six Flags. I couldn't remember which one's better. <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, we we, we have, have dealt with a lot of that over the years, you know, because we have a racially diverse family, to put mm-hmm. it mildly. Yes, we do. I mean, we, we've got, I've got two sons who are slightly darker than me, a daughter who's a little bit lighter than me. And then our little Frankie, who you can almost see through that poor little dude. He is so pale, (laughs) blonde hair and blue eyed. And, and, uh, you know, Amanda and I do not appear to come from the same people group very, very much. And and so yeah, all all this has just been an interesting experience for us to, to live through our life and go, wow, this is just the, the amount of, of importance people put in this. And I look at it and go, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't. It doesn't matter. It doesn't. I mean, if my lips are a little bit bigger or my skin tone is a little bit darker or lighter, or it doesn't change a bit of who I am as a person. And I I wonder, have you found a way to to really show that to people? Like, regardless of all the skin sack that happens to be holding me up right now, like, that doesn't matter a bit. What matters is, is what I do with it. Absolutely. I do find that being willing to engage with an open mind and stepping into conversations or interactions with people, knowing that they are who and what they are, and it's not necessarily within my capacity to control that, is hugely helpful. Relatedly, because the Issues around this particular issue are much more socially divisive at this particular moment in our history. I'm a member of the LGBTQ community. And an interesting story about that relates to a time when I was in college. I was in a off-campus program in Chicago, and I had some roommates It was a house that was specifically for those that were interested in um, multicultural studies, African-American studies in particular. And so all of the people that were living in the house that I was in were African-American men. And there were issues that those gentlemen, all but one of them, and their girlfriends had with the members of the LGBTQ community. And it was very 
threatening to me, those issues, because one of my housemates made a point of showing me that he had a gun. And he even brought it out one day and said, look at what I've got here in the house. Have you ever seen one of these? Let me show you my pistol. So I was aware that someone in the house had a gun that he was keeping around. And we all know, as irrespective of what any of us feel about gun rights, that in the wrong circumstances, people can literally have access to weapons and use them to hurt others. Especially if you're LGBT, you tend to be very aware of the fact that uh, that that you can be a target for violence. And so one day I saw that the girlfriend, a girlfriend of one of the men that I was living with was reading a book, a novel. And it was a novel about a man that was a cross-dresser. And I read this book, or at least I was sort of flipping through it, and it had this very extreme, ridiculous um, description, even in the first few pages of what it was like to be a cross-dresser. I don't know, but I just, no one's life is really like this. And so I told her, this is very odd. Why are you reading this? This is has nothing to do with reality. If anything, it's really demeaning. And then she went on this whole tirade about how disgusting she found LGBT people to be and how awful it was and it was sinful. And she loved the fact that it was putting them in their place and showing them as they were and all that sort of stuff. And it ended up being a very, very heated exchange. Now, she was not paying rent in that house. I was. And so I had a conversation with her and she had a conversation with her boyfriend about it well as well. And then it exploded into this whole situation where the other men in the house, with one exception, who sort of stayed out of it, were very, very upset with me and made their displeasure with my presence in that house in very violent terms clear. I ultimately, though, decided to, with the neutral friend, sit with one of them and have a querying conversation. And it was really me just asking questions, asking questions, asking questions to understand. And with his answers, not in a jerkish lawyery sort of way, but in a curious sort of way, trying to see what do these answers mean? Do they even make sense to you? It actually ended up really affecting him, I found out. And he and I agreed that one of his other friends who was in the house should have a similar conversation. That was the one that owned the gun. And by the end of that semester, the third of those roommates came up to me and said, Scott, you changed my life and how I view the world. It'll never be the same. That's the power of listening and querying. And that to me has been my secret sauce for dealing with the exact same situation that we're talking about. If the person is open at all, it chose not to personalize that I could have easily just jumped into an offense and outrage state. But what would that have done? It could have gotten me shot. But from the extremity of the circumstances that led me to have that circumstance, it's given me the gift of a whole different way of interacting with others. Hey there, Foster Care Nation. We'd like to take a quick minute to step out of the podcast here and ask you guys for a little bit of support. If you could share an episode with people, friends, in a group, with family, 
anywhere where there's somebody who would like to hear this. Also, if you'd like to join us and support our mission, a couple dollars a month would be really helpful. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash fostercarenation. Now back to the show. One of the most powerful things I've learned is, is questions. Learning how to, how to listen to someone and actually ask a question instead of make a statement. Because, you know, and I love the, the, the Republican Democrat divide because it illustrates it so well, you know, I, we could sit here and and rail back and forth about whether or not gun rights are are good or bad. Right. And we would get absolutely nowhere. Let's just be honest. We've been having this argument in public for how many decades now, and we haven't solved it yet. Yeah. You know, but being willing to ask that question and understand the other person is so very powerful it's one of the things I've learned with my kids when, when they're in a hard place, if I can ask a question instead of pulling out the big dad voice, when I get really good and frustrated. Right. And I do that sometimes because I have little kids, which will make you insane. (laughs) I don't know how much time you spent around little kids, but they'll make you crazy eventually. And, but to ask a question with curiosity, instead of why would you do that? That one doesn't get you anywhere. You know, and that's how we talk to each other in public usually, but to actually ask a powerful question and understand where another human being is coming from and you learn to understand them and suddenly it's not a threat. It's a conversation. Right. Two threads I want to pull out of what you just said. A, every human being matters. And that is something I personally have as a philosophical tenet that I refuse to bend on. And if we're willing to engage with others in a curious and open-hearted questioning manner, we're sending the message to them that their opinions and their experience matters. Then once you've done that, you've forged connection. And that's the second point, which is that in a time and in a culture where division is threatening to rip this country apart, and it's not just the United States, there's a lot of countries in the world that are being ripped apart by these political disagreements and problems that are getting worse and worse and worse without solution. Building that connection severs the process that can divide. We have challenges in this country and globally that are big, big. The pandemic has exposed a lot of them, but anyone who thinks that this pandemic is gonna be the last one is living in denial. There's a lot more to come. We have got to be connected within our country, within our societies, within our communities, within our families, globally, or we're not going to be able to conquer those. And it starts exactly as you're indicating, Jason, one-on-one with those in our lives. If we can learn to do that and model that behavior, then there might be hope. Amen. (laughs) Because we, you know, we are the microchasm in our world. And if you look at the way we treat one another, if we can learn to just do that on a bigger scale, do that in social media, Don't say anything on social media that you wouldn't say face-to-face. Don't do anything in person 
that you wouldn't be okay with the entire world seeing going on in your social media. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the, just be a good human. And man, I'd be quite honest. Uh, there was a, a political commentary that I, I used to listen to him from time to time, be, just because he was an amazing storyteller. I believe he was a right wing uh, kind of guy, but I just listened to him for when he would tell stories of growing up in New York city, because he told amazing stories. Mm. But one of his lines, he always said when it came to talking about, you know, the LGBT community was, he said, I really don't personally care how you choose to titillate your orifices, <laughs> you know? And I went, you know, that, that's, that's, that's the size of it though. It's just, just to say it out loud, how silly it really is. I really care if you're an a-hole, yeah. you know, if, if you're a complete and total jerk, if you're, you're an idiot, you're, you're hateful, man. I, I care about that more than what you do when your door's yeah. closed. Yeah. What truly matters what truly matters? The theme of this show is a perfect example of that. Children who might not have a home otherwise, or who might be in circumstances that are untenable, the possibilities that any of those children may represent in this world, that's what matters. What I'm choosing to do behind closed doors that affects absolutely no one else, at least in my opinion, does not matter what are we being outraged about things that are of no consequence seriously outside of offending our own personal moral sensibilities or the futures or lack of futures that the resources that we choose to expend upon our attention spans especially again in the case of the let's say we're just talking in one area around the theme of this show but there's a zillion other areas we could talk about too all of that time spent griping about things that don't matter represent opportunity costs for those that do. And there's a lot of things that do matter. Yes. You know, when, when we look at this, the numbers out there, um, you know, I was listening recently. There's a podcast. It's fairly new. I believe it's called the Forgotten Adoption Option Podcast. There's a lot of alliteration and rhyming going on there. I can't, yeah, brilliant kind of, (laughs) but, uh, but you know, she's, um, Mary Bursack is the gal who, who runs that one. And she talks about how there are, I want to say it was 125,000 kids looking for a forever home right now in this moment, you know, half a million kids in foster care in the U S 125,000 kids looking for a home. And here we are arguing over how someone chooses to titillate their orifices or yeah. whether or not they believe that, you know, you should definitely not be able to own uh, a extended magazine on a handgun, or you should be able to right. own a, a flamethrower, which quite frankly, I, I want a flamethrower. I don't know why. I think it's just because <laughs> I grew up playing with GI Joe and I thought it was cool, but I don't want to argue with anybody over it. Right. I don't think it's important to argue over it. Yeah. There, there are kids that, and let me tell you these kids that they don't find a home they don't build those connections that you're talking about. Some of that stuff creates real damage. You know, that's mm-hmm. where things like reactive attachment comes from. That's where things like psychopaths come from. Soci- yeah. sociopathy, you know, kids end up turning into dangerous, horrible humans. If they don't have that connection piece at the beginning and we're so busy getting on Facebook, if you're old, like me or Instagram, if you're young and hip or what no what's a new TikTok. that's a TikTok, new yeah. i forget which one is hip and cool anymore I, I quit being cool a lot of years ago but uh but you know we're getting on there and arguing about all these other things that don't matter 
all the while we're just ignoring this problem that's going to fester and create more and more problems in the lives of kids who will, at the end of it, this is important to remember, be the ones who are making our end-of-life decisions, our healthcare decisions. They're going to make the decisions about our taxes and our lives, and we're busy just letting them languish in in a horrible situation oftentimes because we can't get away from our arguments over silly things. It also, because they learn from us, sets them up for challenges, understanding what really matters and not, or even being able to see what matters or not. I will throw this out as a statement that may or may not sit well with you or your audience, but I'm going to say it anyway, because I feel passionately about this. COVID was for the world not just a medical test, a public health care test, or even just a political test. It was an ethical test for all of us. How did we rise? How did we fall? The consequences of the ethical choices that we made during it will reverberate for many generations. And I might add, the way that the pandemic itself played out were the consequences of ethical choices that we made all along. Not the least of which go to exactly as to what you were talking about, division. Going back to this theme of every single human being matters. It's not just children, although I'm gonna turn it away from children for a nanosecond to maybe make the point in a different sort of way. There were people who said, and public figures, and again, you may or may not agree with this, but I would challenge those who disagree. There were those who said, some people are just going to have to die. Those were leadership figures in our country. Is that a statement I would challenge anyone to push back on? That some lives don't matter. It was a statement made by a politician that was made in a political context, and there were political reasons for that. But think about it. The political division or the political reasons that it were made were because of the divisions that were roiling our country in the face of the choices that the pandemic presented to us. And so therefore, the statement itself about the value of an entire population of the United States of its intrinsic worth was something that was subject to public debate. It was something that was on the table. When children hear that sort of thing, what are they learning? When we're having those discussions in front of children, what are we teaching them? What will children that might independently have predispositions because of trauma to some of the disorders that you were talking about a minute ago? What will that, how will that impact them when it comes to choices that they make, particularly if they're disordered? And what about those that might not be intrinsically disordered, but are getting their ethical and moral guidance from us, their beginning understandings of what's right and wrong, hearing that some people don't matter? What does that mean for how they're going to treat the next generation of children that come under them? 
And then these consequences can fan out like the world's worst, most dire, you know, portable fan everywhere. Hey there, Foster Care Nation. If you'd like to find yourself in a group with like-minded people, head over to Facebook and you can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash foster care UJ. We've got a group over there where we talk about foster care, we talk about adoption, and we talk about all the things related. If your podcast player allows it, you can also reach down and hit that subscribe button so you get notified every week when we put up uploads. Every Tuesday, a new episode comes out. We'd love to see you next week. Now back to the show. You know, I don't disagree with you a bit, you know, I don't get into the politics of COVID because I think it really depends on where you're at and how it really affects, you know, in our area here in the Midwest, where we're at in a rural area, it was not a big deal here. I mean, it just wasn't, we don't have a very dense population here. And, you know, my, my nearest neighbors, actually, he, he, he came by today to, to tell me that we had a dog get out and take off. Other than that, I haven't seen him in six months. Yeah, probably <laughs> you know and i'm okay with it you know that's just what we live out and out here because we like this life but out here wasn't a big deal but when you go to high density population areas it was a big deal and i have seen you know people from from the high density area who who experienced the, the difficulty of it because you know we've known people who've who've had you know kids get sick from it um and, and as a matter of fact if you if the listeners remember back to um the conversation we had with uh, with a girl named Janelle, 14 years old, I think she was at the time. Yeah. Super healthy girl. I mean, they're active outdoors people, you know, hiking and biking and boating and fishing and all that, like super active outdoor. She got sick. She got real sick. And, and she's still, well, she just finally finished up treatment. Oh, mm-hmm. It took almost a year for her to get back to the shape that she was before. You know, all kinds of medications yeah. and inhalers. Oh and, you but, know, so we, we've seen the effects of it. And we've also seen out here, it's been a pretty calm thing. So, But people have died. And, and the people that I, some of the people that I know, there's one particular person that I happen to work with. And, and he is so anti-mask that he's convinced that Hitler himself has come back from the grave to, to create this mask for this whole thing, just to learn to, to control us all. And to listen to the, the people from both sides. Yeah. Try and try and not communicate with one another, but to throw stones at each other yeah. and see who's left standing at the end. When at the end of the day, we could really just work together. We could work together and make this something we can grow from. And I want to be clear in my statement earlier, there was no implied endorsement of a particular political view. I think probably if anyone were to ask you, me, or a lot of people out there, what our political views are, it might be more nuanced than one might expect, and it might actually surprise some people. However, I do think that the Nate, the one thing I hear that we're not disagreeing on, and that I don't think many people in the country would truly argue with, is that the political discourse, regardless of where you are, is divisive. And the yelling and the screaming goes, again, as to dehumanization and sends messages about who and what we believe to be acceptable parameters of behavior or thinking within a civilized society that our children and their children learn from. Absolutely. You know, the dad's group I'm a part of one of the things we talk, have talked in there 
for years. As a matter of fact, the hat that I'm wearing is actually from that. It says live legendary on there, right? I was going to say it looks really nice. and I like that logo too. <laughs> but, but, you know, one of the things we talk about in there a lot of times is not just living legendary, but legacy. That's, that's the big push where that all started from was a conversation about legacy. And most of us don't realize you don't get a choice as to whether or not you're going to leave a legacy in this world. You will leave a legacy. Mm-hmm. You get to choose whether it's positive or negative, whether you've taught your kids to go out and connect with other humans and build something amazing, or whether or not you've taught your kids to be divisive and hateful and stand and throw rocks until you're the last one standing. And that's what the real winner is, is the last man standing. Yeah. And that's, I think, what, what, what we're both agreeing on. Like, that's a horrible idea yeah. to raise kids in that world and think that we're going to do anything that's worth leaving behind us for the next generation to, to deal with. It's amazing, too, because culturally and from a media perspective, at least here in North America, we tend to focus a lot on external measures of success. Being adopted and growing up in the situation that I did in Kansas, working class family, expectations were not particularly high for someone like me. And so a lot of the drive that I had to achieve levels of professional success were heavily impacted by the need to prove that external uh, worth that I believed would be the way to open a door to a positive legacy when really, and I had to learn this a hard way, legacy is as much about what we leave those who come after us that no one may see except those that interact with us in our families or in our immediate community circles, but it's perhaps even more powerful. Amen. And now, I, I, you know, talking about your, your adoptive family earlier, that's one of the, you know, I want to kind of bring those, those guys back in here for a hot second, because, yeah. you know, I'm, I, I know enough folks in, in the black community. I know that there's some there and traditionally, maybe not so much today, but traditionally, just like in every other community, there's always been some real push against the, the, any kind of a, a lifestyle that's not straight and straight as an arrow. Right. And so, yeah. uh, you know, seeing that you grew up through that, you know, how has that a, how did that affect you and and their relationship as you grew up? Was that something that you, you dealt with when you were younger or something? Huge, huge, huge. My father's parents who were from the rural South basically made it abundantly clear. And this was confirmed by my family later that they didn't really see my sister and I as legitimate family members. They just didn't. And that hurt. I, I could have lived or died. I don't think that they honestly would have noticed, or maybe they would have cared for a second, but like they never, you know, expressed birthday wishes and never returned phone calls. We'd write them. They'd never write back, never that sort of thing. And again, it, it was more or less pretty explicitly stated to my parents at one point or another on my mother's side, the, interracial nature of the relationship played out in a way that I found very challenging. My sister, like I mentioned earlier, looked like she was visibly biracial, not ambiguous in the same way that I am. And so those cousins in particular, I remember they would invite her out to dinner over their house, or they would include her in social gatherings, or they would say, oh, come and and go to the park with us or whatever. And I would be not asked. 
And it was noticeable enough that eventually my mother asked her own sister, what is this about? And I was a bookish kid as well. And her sister said, oh, Scott was too white. And so there was absolutely a, an additional layer of having discomfort with the expectations that I, that were laid upon a certain racial group that I was perceived as carrying, carrying, having some relationship to how those family members interacted with me being LGBTQ only added onto that because I did have family members who explicitly said that's because I'm so white. It's because you're around white people. And that probably would not have been a response to the situation had I been a direct biological child of my parents. That that happens so often because when we decided to start our journey in foster care, we had to make some decisions because race does play into it. Yeah. You know, and we had a couple of family members that were very, very old school that had some very, very real thoughts. And we had to go to them and say, hey, this is what we're doing. And if you can't be a part of this, if you can't be positive, then you got to go, you know, and some people would think it's a really hard decision to cut people out. But for us, it's, it's everything. You're going to either accept us and all of our children for who we are, and you're going to do it in a positive manner, or you're not going to be around my children. You're not going to hurt my children with your hateful words. And admittedly, there are complex inputs and outputs from a social perspective that impact how a parent deals with this. Now, my sister and I would both ask our adoptive parents what our racial background was. And my parents would say, you're Black. And my response in particular, being a little bit more argumentative of the two of us, <laughs> would be like, uh, yeah, look at me. And they would say, you're black, you're black, you're black, you're black, you're black, you're black. So after a while, I was just like, okay, I'm black. Maybe my biological, maybe my biological parents were just two very, very light-skinned black people. What did I know? The reason that they said that was because I believe they were attempting to protect me. Their belief was that in America, if you have any consequential amount of African-American blood in your African blood, I should say in my case, because I wasn't born in America, that you were categorized as a member of the black community and treated accordingly. So I don't really fault them for this. This is how they chose to do it. And I'm not outraged or anything. But then later, I think when I was 16, eventually I said to them, will you please stop just saying I'm black? I'm obviously not. It's ridiculous. I tell people I'm just black when they ask what my racial background is and they laugh in my face. And they said, well, you're actually biracial. And that's when they explained the story that I came to you with at the top of the hour. And believe it or not, although it should have been obvious all along, I had actually invested myself in the identity that my parents had taught me to such an extent that I was devastated when they said this. I was just ripped to shreds. It in a way, it shouldn't have been a shock, but hearing and thinking, I'm black, I'm black, I'm black, I'm black, and then hearing all of a sudden that that really wasn't the whole story. Again, I kind of should have known all along, but the human capacity to delude oneself is pretty powerful. You're also, you yeah. were a kid. 
I was a kid. I was a kid. Yeah. What did I know? And how many of those things that we learn in our childhood are belief systems that we hold on to at 40, 50, 60 years old that don't make any sense to the rest of the world? Y'all, I'm still crying about Santa Claus. <laughs> Me too, because it turns out I got to foot his bill now. Oh, yeah. oh, then I bet you're crying a little bit harder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, seven kids. It's it's more of an issue for me these days. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but yeah, that's it's it's a really interesting way that 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 has has come into your life. But just to see that all that community stuff, you know, whether it's whether it's the LGBTQ community or or the African American or or you know, we'll just call it white culture because I don't think we have a real good name for that mm-hmm. any other way. But all those different parts and pieces come together to create one guy who is, if you look at all those pieces, it's just a whole is out there trying to connect people, yes. trying to show people their personal power yes. and create a legacy, not just that, that says Scott Mason, but teach people how to create their own legacy. That's yeah. a powerful, a powerful force in this world. Yeah. That's all that we have to leave after us. Like you said, we do have an impact that goes beyond just our day-to-day we do have the power to control to some extent that legacy and to the extent that that power is real then i believe it's incumbent upon me at least to attempt to exercise that to the optimal attempt or to the optimal extent possible Amen. Well, I would love to sit and chat with you for another hour or two, but I'm I've already encroached a couple minutes on your next appointment. So <laughs> I should probably- I know I could talk to y'all for a whole day. Are there day-long podcasts? I, I think we Joe Rogan does again. it. We can always <laughs> talk again. Joe Rogan does it for hours and hours and hours, and he gets millions of views and millions of dollars. So maybe I was gonna that's say, I would, I would take the money. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna, let's let's start a different business model here. We could all three do something with that. Yeah, I think I think it has something to do with the movie, the whole movie for stuff and TV. And I think it, I think that's what helps him. Maybe yeah, I'll just have to, have to go get famous first. Okay, we'll work on that together. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I need some help with it. <laughs> well, Scott, I really do appreciate you coming on and telling your story today because, man, it's it's a story that people don't hear very often, and it's a story of positivity. And I am really, quite frankly, in the middle of all this pandemic and and social unrest, just sick to death of people telling stories that are nothing but but their trouble and their their problems and i love hearing a story of a guy who went out and found something had some troubles and still still came out of it making the world a better place troubles are a gift and it's a privilege being able to talk to you thank you thank so you. much all right foster care nation thank you for listening to scott's story Now take his knowledge and wisdom to heart so you can create love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have new episodes every Tuesday. If you'd like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at fostercareuj at gmail.com. You can connect with other like-minded people on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. And don't forget, we have a Patreon where you can support our mission for as little as $5 a month. It's at patreon.com slash fostercarenation. The links to everything are in the show notes or on your podcast player or at fostercarenation.com. And as always, you are so super awesome. I thank you guys. So cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening.